Please pray with me. Father above, we ask that you would send your spirit. Lord, let us each hear what we need to hear from your word this morning. Amen. If y'all are wondering where that last phrase is that Michael read that wasn't in your order of service, I promise it's actually a part of the verse. We cut it out of the order of service, but I didn't tell Michael. I realized in listening to the readings today that we have three readings that have all of these complicated and strange bits. And so I just decided that we might as well have three sermons. I'm, I'm, that's right. No. There's a theme that runs through all that I want to draw out. And forgive me if I don't explain all the strange bits and pieces. If you're curious about those, you know where to find me. In the gospel reading, we see this seemingly inexplicable story. Jesus returns home as a hero. People are talking about him everywhere, the miracles that he has done. He's been ministering not in Nazareth, but near it, around the Sea of Galilee. He's raised the dead. He's cleansed lepers. He's driven out evil spirits. People are talking about him. Wherever he goes, people are curious, intrigued, amazed at his teaching. He speaks with wisdom and authority. People are astounded by him all over the place. And he comes home as a hero. He does a few miracles there, and he teaches with wisdom in the synagogue. Yet the stunning thing is that people he has known his life known all of his life, the stunning thing is that they're offended by this. They're not offended because he did something wrong. They're actually offended by his miracles and his wisdom. This doesn't make sense to us. They should rejoice. The local boy who is the hero has come home. It would be like if someone went out from our midst and became an Olympian, a great writer, a composer, an artist, a scientist, a politician, and then they came back and we scoffed at them. It doesn't make sense. They're offended rather than excited, and so they won't believe in him. The question we're stuck with is why? Why were they offended by Jesus? They give us the answer. They say, we knew this one when he's little. Isn't this the carpenter? We know his brothers. We know his mother. They're offended by his ordinariness, by the fact that he drives a beat-up truck. They're offended by the fact that his job is a common, ordinary job. He shows up saying and doing the things that the greatest of prophets would say and do. He shows up saying and doing things that the Messiah would do. He speaks as if he's God. And they look at him and they say, who are you to act like this? Who are you to have this much wisdom? They look at him and they say, you're clearly not God. We knew you when you were a boy. You're clearly not a prophet. We saw you grow up. You're a nobody. And they're offended by the fact that he would act in the way that he acts. It's hard for us to fathom. And we sort of protect ourselves and say, I wouldn't have acted that way. 
I would have understood who he was and I would have received him. And yet I think that we can understand at least in part because we know what it is to judge people on their appearances. We know that if two people walk through the back door, one the CEO of a major company and the other in poor clothing, which one would it be easier to assume they had something important to say? In other words, we know how to judge with the eyes of the world based on exterior status, just as they did. This is what they were doing, after all. They looked at him and said, we judge you with the eyes of the world based on your exterior status, and you don't have it. You work with your hands for a living, and therefore I don't have to listen to what you have to say. And they walked away. We know, even though we perhaps think we would have been different with Jesus, we know what it means to judge people based on the exterior, based on status in the eyes of the world. After all, the famous are more important in our society than the people who nobody knows. And too often, unfortunately, that falls over into the church. The people of Nazareth were offended by his ordinariness. They were offended by his lack of status. Who are you to speak with God's authority? Look at him. Look at his clothing. He's not worthy of being God's chosen one. That's in effect what they were saying, is because of who you are in terms of status in the eyes of the world, you're not worthy of being God's chosen one. They struggled to believe, in other words, that God would work through humble people. They struggled to believe that he would show up in humble people. If this is beginning to sound familiar, a few weeks ago we encountered several parables where Jesus was saying to his disciples, almost prepping them for this instance over and over, the kingdom of God begins in humility. It begins with little things. We encountered him teaching his disciples with this simple fact that God works through humble people. God is insistent on working through humble people. He builds his kingdom with ordinary people. Jesus was prepping his disciples. But when they arrived at Nazareth, they discovered how hard it is to believe that God would actually do things through the ordinary, do things through the humble. God doesn't need us to be successful by the world's standards. That may take a weight off your shoulders. He doesn't need us to have status by the world's standards. He's absolutely committed to working through the most humble people. Jesus' story of entering Nazareth demonstrates this. But this isn't one of those things that's just a one-off. It's actually all over the scriptures. It's like God is biased on behalf of the poor. He's biased on behalf of the humble. He's biased on behalf of those who have nothing in the world's eyes. It's not even just that he looks at them equally. He's constantly saying, if you are proud, watch out because you will get knocked down. And if you are humble, I'm on your side and I will lift you up. He tells the Israelites through commands over and over, watch out for the people who are poor, the orphans, the widows, the immigrants. Watch out for them because they have a special place in my heart. It's like he's biased on behalf of the humble. It's not just that he likes them, though. It's not just that he's committed to righting the wrongs of the world. He is. It's actually, he's insistent over and over, I actually choose them to build my kingdom. Think about the list of characters through the Old Testament. 
Moses is a prince. He's one of the most powerful men in Egypt. He sees people suffering and he says, I will fix this problem. And God says, no. I need you to spend 40 years in the desert to learn that you are nobody before you will be ready to actually save these people. Gideon, God shows up and says, deliver my people. And Gideon says, why me? I'm the least member of my family, and my family is the least member of my tribe. God purposely picks the nobody. Jephthah, the other great warrior judge, he's the rejected son of a prostitute living in hiding. God picks the people that people overlook, the people with no status in the eyes of the world. We think of Joseph sitting on the throne, saving Egypt through his wisdom and power. But remember where the story begins. A rejected brother, sold into slavery, cast into a prison. God elevates those who have nothing. He chooses to build his kingdom with the humble. David, the last son of his family, the one forgotten about, just a kid in the field with the sheep. That's the one God picks. And then when he starts to rise in power and glory as a general in Saul's army, he has to go through years of exile in the wilderness, learning humility yet again. God picks the weak and the humble to build his kingdom. God's biased towards the lowly. They are the ones that he picks to lead, to build the real work God does with ordinary people. Even when he uses the exalted, think Pharaoh, it's usually against their will. If you're an exalted person being used by God in the Bible, it's usually not a good thing because it usually means God is using you to demonstrate something you would rather not be demonstrated through you. When his chosen ones think King Saul become proud, he humbles them. He brings them down because their pride is a barrier to him working. All through the Bible, God is insistent, I work through the humble and I will bring down the proud. Mary's song, the Magnificat, the thing she sings after hearing the prophecy of giving birth to Jesus, celebrates this. God scatters the proud and he exalts the humble. This is the God that we serve. At this point, you may say, but why? Why is God biased towards the humble? Why does he pick them to build his kingdom? Why is he always insistent that he takes the lowly things? It's such a common occurrence in Scripture that at some point we have to say, what is this? Why does God care so much about elevating the humble? The answer to this question lies in the fact that the ultimate problem with the world is actually our pride. This is the problem with the world. In the fall, we see this. We sought to become something that we are not. We were not content to be what we were. We sought to take God's position, God's authority, God's ability. Our pride said, I am not content to be a creature dependent on God. I am not content to be a reflection of his glory and strength. Instead, I want that authority. I want that glory. I want that strength myself. The problem with the world is actually our pride. We see this in the big scale. But in a simple way, the problem with each one of us is our pride. We seek to be in a place that we are not, and we desire to hold things that are not ours to hold. The problem is our pride. And God cannot work with us until we are actually humbled. 
He cannot work with us when we are clinging to things that the world says have status and value. He cannot work with us until the only thing that matters to us is his presence, his approval. Until we are at the place where the only thing that matters to us is God himself and success in the world means nothing to us, until we are at that place, our pride will always get in the way. The reality is is that the kingdom of God, and this should be good news, the kingdom of God is not built on our strength or our status or our glory. That should deliver us of burdens. The kingdom of God is not built on our success in the eyes of the world. But that means that as long as we keep pursuing success in the eyes of the world, that sort of power and that sort of glory, we will find ourselves at odds with the way that God is working to build his kingdom. He picks the humble and the lowly to build his kingdom because they are the ones who get it. That my success in the eyes of the world means nothing. The only thing that matters is God showing up in my life, him being close to me. This is why the call throughout scripture is for us to become like a child. This is what it means. Children at the earliest stages don't seek success in the eyes of the world. They trust their parents to do that for them. They simply cling and hold on. The call to us is to become like a child. This is why the call to us is to find salvation by resting in God, by trusting his strength and not our own. This is why Paul says in that passage we heard in 2 Corinthians today that God's power is actually perfected in our weakness. One of those statements that we all say yes to but it's hard to let it sink into the depths of your soul. His power is perfected in your places of weakness, not in your places of strength. We say to ourselves, I need to be strong. I need to be successful. But as long as we say those things, we are missing the point. We are supposed to actually depend on God's strength, God's success. His power is perfected in our weakness. Our pride gets in the way of what he would actually do for us. This is why the church errs when it sinks strength and power on the world's terms. When it thinks that its people, its ministry leaders, its pastors need to have status in the eyes of the world, the church is in error. The message throughout scripture is God works through the humble. When the church thinks that it needs to be rich, slick, sophisticated, like a successful company to have an impact, it is actually in error. God works through the humble. The testimony is over and over and over in the scriptures. It's when we finally realize that we are weak that he actually begins to work through us. Because again, it's God's power that counts, not ours. This should be good news because most of us know that we just don't have that much strength. We don't have that much power. And most of us have not achieved that much success in our own life. And yet we keep trying, and we keep telling ourselves, this time I will be a bit more successful, and this time it means I will have more impact in the kingdom of God, or this time God will love me more. And yet the testimony is God shows up with the humble. We get it when we finally say, I can't do it by myself. We get it when we finally say, success in the eyes of the world doesn't mean anything. Think about the stories we just heard. Ezekiel's flat on his face at the beginning of chapter 2. He is beaten up by the world. 
And God speaks to him and he says, stand up. He breathes his spirit into him and he puts his words in him. And he says, you have to fear nothing now. All that matters is that the spirit of God and the word of God is present in this man. And he said, you can walk in the face of any enemy with no fear because my spirit is in you and my word is in you. God didn't need Ezekiel to be strong on his own. He just needed to put his spirit and his word in him. Paul, this message where he saw this vision and he gains this exalted status and yet he's given a thorn in the flesh, something that plagues him. And he says, God, take this away. And God actually said, no, because you need to know that my power is perfected in your weakness. Paul actually gets to the point of saying that I'm content with them. I can't imagine this. I'm content with my weaknesses. I say, no, I'm going to keep fighting against him. And Paul finally got that God will show up and do things that we cannot do when we quit trying to do it ourselves. He works through the humble. And Paul says, then I'm content. Persecutions, insults, hardships, weaknesses. If God shows up in those moments, then that's good enough for me. I'm going to start rejoicing in those broken moments because God shows up. But of course, the most beautiful picture of all of this is Jesus Christ himself. Because the God of glory shows up as a lowly baby. He shows up as the son of a nobody mother who's not even married yet. He shows up ostensibly as the son of a guy who works with his hands for a living. He shows up in such humility. It's God's power that matters. It's not the status or the success or the strength in the eyes of the world. The only thing that matters is what God is doing here. Our pride, our desire for success, our desire for status in the eyes of the world, all of this becomes a barrier to him actually working in us. And all of those stories are hitting us, showing us that God shows up in weak, weak and humble people as soon as they learn to open their hands to him. The people of Nazareth wanted a Messiah who looked powerful in the eyes of the world. They wanted a Messiah who looked powerful. And you know the tragic thing is because they wanted a Messiah who looked powerful in the eyes of the world, they missed it when God actually showed up in their midst. The tragedy of that is God walking in their midst and they can't receive it because they wanted power and success in the eyes of the world. The call to us don't let our desire for success in the eyes of the world make us miss the presence of God in our midst. The call to you individually, don't let your desire to overcome your weaknesses, don't let your desire to overcome the things that hold you back, don't let the desire to be successful blind you to the places that God would actually show up. It's fine for us to seek to grow and learn and become stronger people. I'm not condemning that. But there's times in our pride when we cling to those things and we say, I will matter more if I'm strong. I will matter more if I'm successful. People will have to listen to me then. God will love me more. And when we find ourselves clinging to those things like that, we may discover that we've actually lost sight of what God would actually do. He shows up in weakness. If it sounds like I'm repeating myself, I am. God will show up in the weak places of your life. He will show up in the broken places of your life. The testimony of Scripture is clear. He delights to do that. 
He loves to elevate people from the ashes. He loves to show up in the places where you are a nobody because in those places you recognize he's the only one that matters. What he wants of you is that you would come to him with empty hands, that you would come and say, I am needy. I'm broken. I need you to show up here. The testimony to you is when you open your hands, he will fill them. As he says, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty. Blessed are those who are beggars in their soul. Blessed are those who are meek. The kingdom of God belongs to people who open their hands to him. So the cry to me, the cry to you this morning, is don't seek success on the world's terms. In your places of weakness, come before the Lord and open your hands. You'll discover in that moment that though we in our pride would not remain in our position and sought the position of God, God was willing to leave his position and come down to ours on our behalf. It's this beautiful exchange. In our pride, we sought the place of God, and in his humility, he came to our position to make us whole. So the call to us, let us not value success in the eyes of the world. Do not think that you need that to, value, to be valuable to God. Simply come to him with open hands. Amen.